You're listening to the Historians Podcast. I'm Bob Cudmore, and we welcome Dave Green to the program to chit chat about some history topics. Dave, what's on the agenda, Bob? Well, we have quite an agenda. I hate to say what we'll do at the end because we might run out of time, but we have a letter to the editor, not the editor of the Historian's Podcast, but another uh, editor. And then I want to spend some time talking about Amsterdam Reads and uh, their historical novel that the folks in Amsterdam, New York, are reading called The Nightingale by Kristen Hanna. But we begin with what I thought was a very intriguing letter to the Daily Gazette. And then at the end, uh, after reading the letter, I found out it was written by a friend of mine, an associate in in history pursuits up in Montgomery County. It was a letter written by Jacqueline, commonly known as Jackie Murphy, who lives in Fort Johnson for a number of years. Uh, Jackie was the Montgomery County historian. And... uh, She grew up in Amsterdam, and here's what she writes. Broomcorn is no longer tilled on the Mohawk River Islands. The hardwood forests have been cut down for a variety of products, one of which was lumber for buildings. However, limestone that was cut from the earth hundreds of years ago is still being quarried for road construction material. But when honestly discussing what we have in surplus... Amsterdam's abandoned homes are at the top of the list. The blight is in every neighborhood. Thieves have gained entry and extracted copper tubing. But there exists more to be reclaimed. The blight could be turned to an advantage. Even though barns serve as the most common source of reclaimed wood, the possibility of reusing house beams is real. In Amsterdam's heyday, 1880 to 1940, when 29 millionaires resided in the city. Many homes were constructed with rich embellishments and long-lasting hardwood. This fact should be acted upon by the city. To execute the plan, a knowledge of earlier construction patterns should be learned. Some local educational facility could offer the course. How to go about taking out the molding, the newel posts and light fixtures would be part of it. Bricks are other sought-after items can be added to the list of potential profit. Next storage of these reclaimed items could easily be found in one of the many empty factory buildings. Some of the advantages would be to lessen the cost to the taxpayers and the environmental harm that dumping the demolished structures causes. The recycled parts would provide sturdy and unique alternatives to the imported plastic products found on today's shelves The list would go on as to what is salvageable. Let's capitalize on what is real and a detriment and turn it into a reclamation campaign. Really good idea. Real good idea. Every time I drive by one of the old farm barns that you see with the weathered wood, I make the same comment. They'll pay a fortune for that stuff down in New York City. That's right. And uh, I guess what Jackie's saying is you find it not only in the barns, but also in, in cities like Amsterdam. Right, right. I mean, this is a great idea. People who do renovations, if, if you, if you uh, establish the reputation that come to Amsterdam, we've got this stuff, you pick through it, there's some money to be made there. 
Yeah, of, of course, until all I, the laws, you know, until all of a sudden the city fathers decide, well, you can do this and you can't do that. But it's a good idea at base value. Yeah, I'm sure there are a lot of uh, I shouldn't say I'm sure, but I would imagine there will be a lot of roadblocks to this idea if it someone actually in government pushes it forward. But as you say, if, if Amsterdam could be seen as a center for that, because Unfortunately, thieves are taking the stuff already. Mm-hmm. Now, I remember, I remember when the uh, Buddhists uh, moved in and they bought a number of abandoned properties, and they were appalled when the you know, thieves went in and took the copper and took everything, everything out of it. You know, it's kind of a common uh, sort of crime. So, well, anyway, that's that's Jackie's I- uh, idea, uh, and there are beautiful homes in Amsterdam, kind of in in disrepair. I mean, some are not. I mean, obviously, some people are rehabbing them. And have you read who's the latest rehabber of an historic home in our area? It Well, I will tell you. It's the <laughs> mayor, of, mayor of Albany and her husband, Mayor Kathy and Bob Sheehan. They live in the city of Albany, you know, since she's mayor, uh, but they live in kind of a, like almost a suburban part of Albany. But she... And her husband have purchased a house on Arbor Hill. In um, somebody told me the name of the neighborhood. I mean, they have all these different neighborhood names. So, I mean, to some extent, I imagine uh, this is a political <laughs> statement on her part. You know that she's committed to the city, but she intends to live there. I, I saw they, a picture of it. Yeah, brownstone, I believe you would commonly call it. Yeah, well, or brickstone. Yeah, made out of some kind of stone, and. Uh, she, it's walkable. I mean, she was saying you can walk downtown. She can walk to work uh, from there. Uh, it'll take her a while, but uh, she, you know, she's interested in doing that. That's uh, kind of far beyond me, Dave. Uh, absolutely. If you, if you want to get rid of Bob, give him a hammer. <laughs> That's right. He'll disappear honestly, in a minute. And I only want to go as far as you want to go with this, but you've worked in construction and, and to some extent in rehabbing an old building or old buildings that you've. Uh, worked on right. I mean, replicating the molding and the and the beams and any uh, you know you got to dig down through this stuff. It's extremely expensive, and um, I, I think I think uh, the lady has a great idea. Hope it works out. Yeah. All right, that's from uh, former Montgomery County historian Jackie Murphy. Well, our next topic on this edition of the Historian's Podcast. But, but before you go there, Bob, let me ask you, way back at the beginning, first couple of words you used, you said broom corn. Right. Um, this uh, Amsterdam, in addition to being the carpet city, was once broom city. Uh, the river flats, you know, the um, the land down by the, the Mohawk River uh, and now the river and the canal was very good for raising what was called broom corn. I don't know if people actually ate the corn, but the stalks were used to make brooms. And it wasn't just in Amsterdam. They did that in Schenectady as well. But Amsterdam had a number of broom factories uh, in the uh, back in the day, around the early 1900s. And now you bring another thought to mind, and that would be not necessarily an association but I often wondered if they were still or still in business or, or how long ago they went out of business because each time I would travel the thruway, I would see the building on the north side of the thruway that was the white, white ringer mop 
company. No, yeah, it was White Mop Ringer, and that was in Fultonville. Uh, one of my cousins worked there once. They they made the mop ringers. You know what I mean? It was it a maybe it was the pail. It was the whole shebang, but it was a pail with a um, you know like a squeezer, thing, a little squeezer. Yeah. yeah, I get it. Yeah, all right, okay. That's what they made. But I I don't honestly I don't know. I think they're not in business anymore. But um, yeah, and it seemed to be always passed white mop ringer plant number two. <laughs> But I never saw plant number one. <laughs> All right, so let me get you back on track here. We we got to back up three from the Ringer Mop Company for to the broom corn yes. to whatever you were going to talk about. Well, I was going to talk about Amsterdam Reads, which is a community read program. It's national in scope. Or many communities in our area do it, and and all over the country. And I've been involved in uh, in Amsterdam Reads, which is linked to the Amsterdam Free Library since it started back in the early 20 aughts and the book we're reading this year is called the nightingale by Kristen Hanna, which focuses on two strong but vulnerable sisters in occupied France during world war II. I've been trying to reach or get an interview with the author, Kristen Hanna uh, so far without success. So I didn't want to not do something. So I've got some, things to say about it myself uh the question of whether we'll be able to i'll be able to interview her is um still up in the air but what i found is she has a number of interviews online and our audience of course can just put her name in if they're interested and, and check these interviews because Kristen Hanna is an interesting person a little what i remember of her bio she was sort of raised her parents well, I dare say maybe we're like hippies. They lived out in California, and her mom and dad and Kristen, I think she had some siblings, they started traveling around the western United States doing this, doing that. And then at some point their father uh, said, this is where we stay. And where they stayed was in the state of Washington. So she grew up there, a smart lady. She went to law school. But during law school, I believe it was, she was uh, helping her mother uh, because her mother was uh, ill and, and, in fact, was dying of breast cancer. And as a kind of a mother-daughter project, they said, you know, we, we could write a book. So they wrote some a book. And that book apparently was not successful. But Kristen Hanna then went on to write other books and you know, other works of fiction. You might even say romance fiction. Uh, and she has had a substantial career as a novelist. But then she wrote this book, The Nightingale, which is more in the province of some of the authors we talked to on the historians. It's more of a, of a historical novel uh, based on a lot of research done by uh, Kristen Hanna. And The Nightingale took off. It was successful beyond anything she'd ever done. It was on top of the New York Times bestseller list as a hardcover, as a paperback, which it's uh, which is out now. It's being talked about for a possible movie. And it's really kind of, even though she was a successful writer, it sort of changed her life, you know, and uh, it, it's, you know, it's that, there's that aspect of the story. But from the point of view of history, uh, again, as I said, the book's called The Nightingale. I don't think it tells too much of it to say that the Nightingale was the nickname uh, or war name, if you will, 
of one of the women in that she writes about in the book, because that was the uh, translation of the French, uh, their French last name, which was Rosignol, means Nightingale, and that's what they used as the code name for the uh, young woman who, in France during World War II, was involved in the French resistance. Her sister was not you know, involved directly in the French resistance. She was just, just trying to live. And I had a fascinating discussion with a couple of uh, friends of mine, one of whom uh, is a lady who grew up in France at the, you know, after World War II, and asking her what life was like in her family during the war. And, you know, and, and she didn't experience it, but she would have been told about it. And I must say, it kind of impressed me in connection with um, Kristen Hanna's book, because, and, and she, she too, this woman from France, is reading or has read Kristen Hanna's book. She said it was they were pretty spot on, because uh, Kristen Hanna writes, for example, when the Nazis took Paris, the couple of the characters in the in the novel just start walking. They just they, if you had a car, you took a car. If you didn't didn't you you walked, and they're they're walking just to get somewhere, you know, because they're assuming you know the Nazis are right on their trail, and they and they were, and sometimes the Nazis would, uh, airplanes would strafe the refugees, you know, walking on these, uh, on these roads. And eventually most people got somewhere and they, they hunkered down for the rest of the war. You know, some of them were, you know, if they were Jewish, they tend, many of them were, were sent to concentration camps and died and, 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 and many others did as well. But it's, so ask, I mean, we've covered all sorts of aspects of World War II, but this I thought was kind of, you know, something different. You know, what was happening in an in basically in one given occupied country. Mm-hmm. All right, all right. You know, the, yeah. the individual story among the crowd. Yeah. So, um, as I say, so that's the basic premise of the book. It's talking about two sisters who, you know, lived through. World War Two. I'm, I'm not done with the books. I'm not quite sure they both lived through the war, but uh, that that's basically what's going on. But what Kristen Hanna had heard about, uh, and she made it the basis of one of her characters, was a uh, the story of a real woman who was not French, but she was Belgian, but I believe she was from the French-speaking part of Belgium. Um, and her name uh, was Andre de Jong. Hope I'm saying that near correct. It's I can't help you. <laughs> Andre A N D R E E, but you know it's it's a woman, and then D D E and J O N G H. So Andre de Jong, and she was 19. And the and the one of the faults I thought you know being pretentious how gee how, how would a teenager because she's got it the woman in the novels a teenager when she starts doing this brave stuff for the resistance i said well would an 18 year old do that well a 19 year old did this woman from belgium um she had herself been inspired by a woman from world war one named edith cavell who was eventually killed in the war who who fought with the with the French, and what Andre de Jong did, and what the woman in the in the um, novel does, 
is sort of create an underground railroad for downed Allied pilots. You know, at the beginning of the war, they're all British or Canadian, uh, maybe I suppose they possibly could be French if they were French who had, who had fled the, uh, uh, the the country successfully. But she would take a given pilot, you know, not just she alone, but she was part of a resistance cell uh, that did it, Andre de Jong and the woman in the in the novel. And they would lead the pilots to Spain, you know, which isn't like like around the corner. So first off, they, they would have to take tra- a train to as near Spain as they could. And then they would have to hike over the Pyrenees Mountains. Uh, and the reason they were going to Spain was that Britain had an, um, an embassy or a consulate in some uh, Spanish city that they could turn the, the pilots over to. And, and then the, the British would, uh, would get them home. Uh, specifically, uh, Dijon, it says, uh, and this is from Wikipedia, after German troops invaded Belgium in May 1940, Dijon moved to Brussels. She became a Red Cross volunteer. In, in safe houses at the time were British soldiers, those left behind at Dunkirk and escapees. Uh, Young organized a series of safe houses for these soldiers, also procuring uh, civilian clothes so they could be identified as well as false passports. In the summer of 1941, with the help of her father, she set up an escape network, which later became known as the Comet Line. Uh, Working with other uh, members of the resistance in the south of France, they established links with the safe houses in Brussels. A route was found using trains through occupied and what they called Vichy France to the border with Spain. The final line was 1,200 miles in captured, uh, I'm sorry, 1,200 miles in total. The first escape attempt was unsuccessful. All the escapees were captured by the Spanish. Only two of 11 reached England. So Dijon decided to lead the second group, a group of three men, in August 1941. And in that month, she appeared at the British consulate in Bilbao with a British soldier and two uh, Belgian volunteers, having traveled from Paris to Bayonne, then on foot over the Pyrenees through the Basque country. Uh, She requested British support for her escape network, which was granted by MI9, which is the um, British Military Intelligence Section 9. So the the British, when they saw that this could work, they they bankrolled it. They they paid for this. And ultimately, de Jong helped 400 Allied soldiers escape from Belgium through occupied France to Spain and Gibraltar. She was described as one of the greatest agents, you know, like... um, you know, in the resistance, if you will. Uh, Comet Line members and their families took great risks. Dijon made more than uh, 50 double crossings. After 1942, the work became even more dangerous. Southern France was occupied by the Germans, and the whole of France came under direct Nazi rule. Many members of the Comet Line were betrayed, and Dijon herself was captured in the French Basque country in January of 1943. 
which was the last stop on the escape line. She was sent to a prison in Paris, eventually to a concentration camp in Germany. Even in her absence, the common line helped about 700 more Allied soldiers uh, reach safety. She did not die in the war. She was held by the by the British, I'm sorry, she was held by the Germans and the Nazis and survived the war. Her father did not. Her father, who had helped her set up this uh, comet line, uh, he was executed in 1944. But she wasn't done yet. After the, after the war, André de Jong moved to Africa. You know, Belgium had colonies in Africa. And she worked uh, with the people who had leprosy uh, and did that for the, for the rest of her life. Uh, and she, she um, oh, I know, she, she met a British novelist in 1959, who recorded her candid account of her war experience in his journal, which he published in 1961. That's the novelist Graham Greene. Graham Green. Uh, she died, and by then she was a, a Belgian countess. André de Jong uh, died in 2007 at age 90 at the university uh, uh, clinic, you know, back home, if you will, back in uh, Brussels, Belgium. So... That's the story on which they base the Nightingale. And again, something I'd not heard of. I had never heard that story before. Interesting. And and you thought you had a good resume. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, this this woman was, uh, yeah. you know. Stories did, to tell. Yeah, a story to tell. So we'll, uh, we'll see if it ever bears fruit uh, finding um, or having Kristen Hanna uh, speak uh, to us on one of the historian uh, podcast editions. Uh, my hunch is she's kind of moved on. She's written one or two more novels since uh, writing the um, the Nightingale. Uh, so she's kind of a busy lady. You're listening to the Historians podcast, and we do need your help to keep these programs going. Our GoFundMe campaign is underway. You can contribute online at GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. That's GoFundMe.com forward slash Historians 2018. Or send a donation in the mail to me, Bob Cudmore, and send it to 125 Horseman Drive, Scotia, New York, 12302. Well, we have about a few minutes left on the on the podcast today, Dave. So let me just give you some of the highlights of a, of a recent uh, column uh, that, you know, something that I've worked on in a way for years. I wrote a story about uh, this uh, maybe in the mid 2000s and occasionally update it with new information, including a column I just uh, put out. It's about the Amsterdam artist, Mary Vanderveer. Born on a farm in Fort Hunter in 1865 to an old Dutch family, artist Mary Vanderveer produced numerous oils, pastels, and watercolors in her remarkable life. She primarily painted flowers, portraits, and landscapes. Many of her artworks are in private collections. Some are offered for sale online. Several of her paintings are at Amsterdam's Walter Elwood Museum. She was the daughter of John and Jenny Van Evera van der Veer, an old Dutch family, in other words, a family that had been 
in uh, our area for a long time. And once again, she was born in Fort Hunter, which is on the south side of the uh, Mohawk River, just a bit uh, west of the south side of Amsterdam. Um, as a child, she was uh, of age three. Mary was stricken with polio. Her legs were paralyzed. Her hands and back were affected. The family moved to Cranes Hollow Road in the town of Amsterdam, where an accident threatened her eyesight. Historian Catherine Strobeck uh, said that Mary accidentally poured a whitewash solution onto her head. Her father was using the whitewash to paint a wall. A family member threw milk into Mary's eyes, the story goes, saving her sight. Her family was very appreciative of Mary's artistic talent and did a lot for her and apparently had the means to do it. She attended the National Academy of Design in New York City, and her pictures were displayed in the 1893 Chicago World's Fair and Paris Exhibition. Mary went to Europe and studied with James McNeil Whistler. Her self-portrait was the only painting in her class of you know, Whistler's students chosen for a show that Whistler held in 1900. Mary got the news that her picture was chosen after going to Rome. In Europe, Mary was known for traveling around the continent on crutches and in wheelchairs, also smoking cigarettes, and she bobbed her blonde hair. She spent time back in Amsterdam and elsewhere in America. She had uh, an affinity for Philadelphia, seemed to frequently travel there. Mary's father had become a contractor who built houses on Amsterdam's Market Hill. The family itself lived on Lincoln Avenue. He converted a barn on Arnold Avenue into a house and studio for Mary using the services of architect P.P. Cassidy. The dwelling was the subject of a House Beautiful article in 1915 entitled How Barneo Became Little House. Adjacent to her back door, uh, Mary Vanderveer had a small garden plot of cultivated and wild flowers. A woman named Helen Ireland Hayes of Johnstown, in an article that she wrote about Mary Vanderveer, said that young people tended to find Mary sympathetic and helpful. After World War I, Mary lived for a time in Veer, Holland, where her ancestors had resided. After coming back to Amsterdam, Mary painted flowers and portraits and also Sackendaga Reservoir scenes. One of her paintings attained notoriety because of its disappearance. Vanderveer did a portrait of the founder of Amsterdam's women's club, the Century Club, a woman named M. Annie Allen Trapnell. The portrait was stolen from the Guy Park Avenue Women's Club uh, many years ago, and as far as I know, it was uh, never recovered. During a trip to Philadelphia to do a portrait, and I think this probably would have been sometime in the late 20s, uh, Mary fell and hurt her back, and after that, she could not walk. A later injury hurt her hands, and she had to stop painting. In 1932, Many of her paintings, Dutch interiors, portraits, and flowers, were displayed at the home of Elliot Boyce on Guy Park Avenue in Amsterdam, a benefit for the YMCA. The Boyce home later became the Boyce Funeral Home. 
Mary Vanderveer died in 1945 at age 79. A memorial program was held at her home, organized by the Daughters of the American Revolution. Mary's niece, Marie Gilbert, wrote, In a competitive masculine field, not noted in the past for its financial remunerations, Miss V was able to support herself and to travel. Gilbert, who posed for a Vanderveer portrait as a child, said her aunt's blue eyes twinkled, and she she could be a, a tough customer. Uh, her niece saying she had a tongue sometimes peppery, but a merry laugh. Dennis Drenzek, a graphic artist, created an exhibit of her paintings from private collections held at Old Fort Johnson in 2007. Latest focus on history column about Amsterdam artist Mary Vanderveer. You've been listening to the Historian's Podcast. I'm Bob Cudworth.